Volume Two, Chapter Fourteen of Mr. Hogarth's Will. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mr. Hogarth's Will by Catherine Helen Spence. Volume Two, Chapter Fourteen. Francis Hogarth's Canvas and Election. There can be little doubt that Jane Melville was a good deal influenced in her decision as to the position she ought to hold with Francis by the letter she had received from Tom Lowry on the morning of the day in which her cousin had betrayed to her, more unmistakably than ever, the state of his own heart. It was something more for him to give up, and, as I have said before, she rather overestimated both the importance of the public duty and the amount of success in it which Francis was likely to attain to. It might seem to impartial observers rather utopian to hope and expect some regeneration of the political world of Great Britain, from the return of an intelligent country gentleman of independent and original principles, for a few obscure Scottish boroughs, to be one of an assembly of six hundred and fifty-eight legislators. But it is from such utopianism, felt not in one instance but in many, that the atmosphere of politics, both in Great Britain and in Australia, can be cleared and purified. When people, whether as electors or candidates, or, as in the case of Jane Melville, even those who are neither, take an exaggerated view of the trouble, expense, and annoyance attending the discharge of public duty, and form a low estimate of the good that each honest, energetic individual can do to his country, by using every means in his power to secure good government, to promote public spirit, and to raise the standard of political morality, the country is on the decline. It may grow rich— it may grow in national prosperity, but as a nation it wants the soul of national life and national freedom. I prefer Jane Melville's rather unreasonable hopes to the pusillanimous fears, the laissez-faire policy of those who think they know the world far better, and who believe the game of public life is not worth the cost of the candle that lights it up. If she had been the only woman in the world, or the only woman likely to suit Francis and to make him happy, she would have felt very differently. But surely he could have no difficulty in finding, among the hundreds of thousands of marriageable women in Great Britain, some one as likely, she even thought more likely, to satisfy his heart than herself. It was only because circumstances had made him know her so well, and because he had been so intimately connected with no one else, that he believed he loved her. He was a man whom any woman might easily learn to love, and if she steadily held out to him that she was only his dear sister, his faithful friend, and that she could never be anything else, he would ere long form a tenderer tie. But she hoped and wished that his lot might be cast with a good woman, who would not grudge her the secondary place that she felt she could not give up. She tried to convince herself that it could only be friendship really on his part, but he had been so unused to affectionate friendships, especially with one of the other sex, that he was very likely to mistake his feelings. The state of her own heart she did not like to look into very closely. She knew that Frances was inexpressibly dear to her, but the absolute absence of all jealousy made her doubt if it were really what is called love. She could look forward without pain to another person becoming more to him than herself. My readers will think that if it had been really love, it would have forced itself upon her, and burst through all the barriers that were laid across its course. But love in a strong nature is very different from the same amount of love in a feeble nature. If it had been her own property and career that had to be given up for his sake, her love would have probably conquered all private ambition. 
but the very high estimation in which she held her cousin fought against her instinctive wish to make him happy. And if the irrevocable step were taken, what security would she have that he might not regret it? She dwelt in her own mind on the disparities between them, which, but for the peculiar circumstances in which they had been placed by her uncle's will, must have prevented the formation even of the friendship, now so close and so precious. She was perhaps scarcely aware that such contrasts are more favourable to the growth and the continuance of love than too near resemblance in character and temperament. She was so different in many ways from him. He was literary, she was practical. He was poetical and artistic, and by no means scientific. She was destitute of taste, and saw more romance in the wonders of science than in much of the poetry he admired so much. He was aristocratic by temperament, and only forced by her influence at the turning point of his life into her democratic views. She could not rest from the overactivity of her nature, while he liked repose, meditative, literary, and dilettante. The strong sense of duty, which certainly was the guiding principle of his nature, led him to exertion, while Jane worked because she could not help it. With Jane's temperament Francis would never have stayed for fifteen years clerk in the Bank of Scotland, while there were new countries to conquer, or new fields to work in. He found pleasure in beautiful things. All disorder or disorganization was positively painful to him. To begin again a life of comparative poverty, burdened with the care of Elsie, would be far more trying to him than to her, for though she had been brought up in greater affluence, she cared less for the elegances of life. She loved him far too well to allow him to sacrifice a great deal more than she thought she was worth for such a doubtful good, and she entered heart and soul into the prospects of this election, as the thing which would decide Francis's fate, and would give him still nobler work to do, to keep him from regretting what it was better he should not obtain. The spiritual communication on the subject of Francis's hopes, to the effect that after a time he should succeed in the dearest object to his heart, had made far less impression on her mind than on his. She had not heard the unearthly taps, she had not been startled by the appropriate answers. She had not herself had her hand arrested at the letters which spelled out the unknown names. Her curiosity led her to attend a séance with Francis at the same place, but everything on that occasion was a failure. The spirits had not got rightly en rapport with her, her dead relations were misnamed, their messages were uncharacteristic, and the spirit of Mr. Hogarth never could be summoned up again. She therefore determined to dismiss the whole subject from her thoughts, and advised Francis to do the same. Mr. Dempster, however, was not willing to relinquish his half-made proselyte, and certainly, the less Jane was inclined to believe in these manifestations, the more she became attached to the simple-minded, pious visionary who rested so completely in them. Jane's own life was particularly full of work and of worry at this time, for as Miss Phillips might have taken part of the blame to herself, if she had conceived it possible that she could do wrong, for it was on her account that the housemaid had given warning, she said that two missuses, that was, Mrs. Phillips and Miss Melville, was enough for her, and she could not submit to a third, and she couldn't abear Miss Phillips's interference. The nursemaid took umbrage at Elsie sitting so much in the nursery with the children, though it was what Mr. Phillips liked, and what the children delighted in and besides there was no other convenient place for her except her own bedroom which was too cold for comfort and too dark for fine work elsie's position in the house was rather anomalous and certainly added to jane's difficulties while francis was busily engaged with his canvas 
Mr. and Mrs. Phillips took a short tour on the continent. Harriet would have liked to accompany them, and threw out hints to show that she expected an invitation, but her sister-in-law thought they had done quite enough for her, having her all the time in London, and taking her about everywhere. Jane was to be left in charge of the children, and Elsie was to go with her mistress. Now that Mrs. Phillips had a lady's maid, she could not possibly travel without one, and as neither her husband nor herself knew any modern language but their own, Elsie might be useful besides as an interpreter, as she understood French very tolerably, and had learned a good deal of Italian. There might be advantage by and by from being able to advertise French and Italian acquired off the continent, for perhaps a school might suit the Melvilles better than going into business. So Jane was very glad indeed that her sister, who would profit most by it, should take the trip rather than herself. Miss Phillips returned to Derbyshire, as she had no desire to stay even with such a congenial companion as Miss Melville, with the drawback of a houseful of children. In the meantime Francis's canvass went on briskly. Mr. Sinclair constituted himself his most active agent, and certainly took more trouble and fatigue about it than any paid agent. But he sometimes seemed to do his cause more harm than good by his constant recurrence to first principles, which alarmed the jog-trot old Whigs, and occasionally even the out-and-out -out radicals. The five boroughs, whose representation Mr. Hogarth was about to contest, were grouped together because they lay in adjoining counties, and not because they had any identity of interests. In the good old times, before the passing of the Reform Bill, each borough sent one delegate to vote for the member. The delegate was elected by the majority of the town council, and as that body invariably elected their successors, the representation of the citizens, either municipal or parliamentary, by such means, was the most glorious fiction that has ever been devised by the wisdom of our ancestors. The double election in this case had no good tendency. The Reform Bill was, on the whole, a very good thing, more because it was a great change in the representation, which was carried out without endangering the Constitution, and was an earnest of still greater reforms being made in the future, than because there is any very great improvement, either in the character of the electors or their representatives. But to Scotland it was a greater boon than to England, for the semblance of representative institutions, without the reality, was a mockery to a free people, and a very mischievous mockery. In 1850 the boroughs had each their registered voters on the roll, who each voted for his favorite candidate, so that the votes of five hundred men in one borough could not be neutralized by those of eighty men in another. The stronghold of the Conservative Party lay in Swinton, the genteel, and Freeborough, the county town. The Liberals mustered very strong in Ladykirk, which had taken to the woollen manufactory within the last quarter of a century, and had increased very much in extent and population, so that it had far more voters paying ten pounds rent than any of the other towns. In Aldbiggin and Plainstain's parties were so equal that no majority on either side could be reckoned on, but the Whig majority in Ladykirk was expected to overtop the Tory majority in the first two towns by as much as would secure Hogarth's return. The Honourable Mr. Fortescue was again to be put up for the Tory interest, for, though he had not distinguished himself last Parliament, he was a perfectly safe party-man, and connected by marriage, not with the Duke, but with a Tory Marquise, next in consideration in the district, who had great influence in the county returns. Mr. Fortescue found he had a different man to fight with in Francis Hogarth from his opponent last election, Mr. Turnbull, so he felt he needed more backing, and brought with him a Mr. Toutwell, a great gun with his party, 
who went his rounds both with and without him, and acted as his mouthpiece. "'One has confidence in an experienced man,' said this gentleman, in a confidential way to the electors, when he met with them singly or by twos and threes. If the Earl had put up a man of greater parliamentary experience, he might have had a chance to oust Mr. Fortescue. But his picking up this quill-driver, who has spent his life behind a bank-counter, and offering him to the boroughs, is really an insult to the constituency. Mr. Fortescue is no orator. There is enough of us in the house to speak, heaven knows. There is only too much talking about nothing. But Mr. Fortescue's vote was never given wrong. Never once did he forsake his colours. Don't look to the speeches. Look to the division list, and there you will see that you can trust your member. As for this Hogarth, there is not a single thing that he has done that inspires confidence, even with his own party. He is far too radical even for the Earl. I cannot imagine how that old fox has been so misled as to take him up, probably for a consideration. Look at those allotments he has made over or given away to his labourers, the most dangerous innovation that could possibly be made in such a country as this. When the non-propertied classes see such things, they fancy they should all share in the spoil. This is how socialism is to come in upon us. These levelling and no doubt godless views prepare the way for such revolutions as we have seen with so much horror across the channel. Old Cross Hall was a sceptic of the worst kind, and picked up his views of religion and politics in France, and this new man could not rest till he too went to France to improve his mind in the same way. These cottages he has built on his estate, no doubt to increase his popularity, and perhaps at Ladykirk they may go down, but in Swinton and Freeborough people see things differently, and even plain stains and old biggin like no such new-fangled notions put into working people's heads. The idea of compelling proprietors to build such palaces for their tenants' labourers, when the labourers themselves do not ask for them, and do not care for them when they get them, and I hear that Hogarth says they should all build houses just like his, mere claptrap to win political influence, for his new people break the windows and take no care of their fine new houses. I am sure property is burdened heavily enough without his absurd crotchet for additional spoliation. Old Cross Hall was crazy enough to leave him a lot of money as well as the estate. He certainly might have left the money to the poor girls he had brought up like his daughters, and not have left them to starve, and to be a burden on the country, and young Cross Hall can see no better way of spending it than throwing it away for the chance of this seat, but he has no chance. The bank clerk's hoards will be somewhat diminished before all his expenses are paid. We need take no trouble. Indeed, Mr. Fortescue might walk the course. But in spite of all this careless talk, Mr. Fortescue, and Mr. Toutwell, too, did take a great deal of trouble, and employed every possible means to secure the certain majority of the thirty which they spoke of. The greatest hope they had was in a split between the new man and the Earl's party, and Mr. Fortescue's agents managed to make the most of every little point in dispute. Reports reached the Earl from different quarters, mostly reliable, that the return of Mr. Hogarth would not at all strengthen his party in the country. He had but a small following, and was comparatively little known. The county voters were mostly tenant-farmers, who generally voted with their landlords. The race of portioners, or small proprietors, was dying out in Shire, as it is in all the British island, and large proprietors were very much opposed to Cross Hall, on account of his loose views as to the rights of property. At Newton, however, which was a large manufacturing town of recent growth, and not a royal borough, but which was of very great importance in the county representation, 
Francis Hogarth was extremely popular. He was the real friend of the people, the only man in the county who seemed to understand anything about the rights of labor. The electors of Newtown felt aggrieved that they, who were far more numerous than those of any of the five royal boroughs, were thrown into the county representation, where their votes did not count for one-fourth of what they would do in the boroughs. They felt personally interested in the return of Cross Hall, as he was generally called, and would not leave a stone unturned to secure it. The non-electors of Newtown, a still more numerous body, regretted that they could do nothing to further his views, except by going en masse to Ladykirk on the day of the election, and combining with the non-electors there, so as to make as great a physical demonstration as possible, for they considered that Cross Hall, if returned, would be their representative, ready to fight their battles, and to redress their grievances. "'Be careful, Mr. Hogarth, be careful,' said Mr. Prentice, his Freeborough agent. "'Say nothing that may awaken jealousy or mistrust among our own party. You are much too frank in your assertion of your opinions, correct enough, no doubt, but your people are not prepared for them, and your majority is not so large that you can afford to lose a single vote.' "'It certainly is not large in your borough,' said Francis. "'A minority of twenty-three is the most favourable thing you can expect here. I think twenty-four. At Swinton there is a certain minority of fourteen, which the least imprudence on your part would double. Aldbiggin and Plainstains are ties at present, so your majority at Ladykirk should be large to cover up our deficit. We have the hardest work to do, with the least credit. We should have double pay at these losing boroughs,' said Prentice, laughing. "'But for heaven's sake, Mr. Hogarth, keep your friend Sinclair quiet. If he would only take a fever or something of that kind, to keep him in bed till he is wanted to vote, it would be a real service to the cause. You must address the electors to-night at a public meeting, and, if possible, keep Mr. Sinclair away. We will get Mr. Hunter and Mr. Thurlstane and a few others to speak in a quiet, taking way, and you need not say too much yourself, and do not make it too distinct.' I have been agent here ever since the passing of the Reform Bill, and I should know what electioneering for these boroughs is. Our people admire a fine speaking, a few flowers of rhetoric. A little oratory and enthusiasm are very telling, but you need not pin yourself down to any definite course of action. I am, perhaps, too much disposed to an indefinite course of action. My principles I wish the electors to confide in, and I will act up to them as the occasion may offer, said Francis but if you are too broad and direct in your assertion of principles, you may offend a third part of our sure votes. Nothing like a few good large words, without much meaning, for these boroughs. By the by, there is a deputation from Lady Kirk come to wait on you, before you speak at this meeting. It is nearer for them to come here than to Swinton, so it is more convenient. In fact, there were two deputations awaiting the Liberal candidate— one from the electors of Ladykirk, headed by Sandy Pringle, a man who had risen by the fabrication of woolen-yarn from a weaver into a mill-owner, though not in a very large way, and the other from the non-electors of Newtown, who, though they had no legitimate right to take up Cross Hall's time, wanted a few words with him before the election. Their spokesman was Jamie Howiston, of the class called in the South Country, in common parlance, a creasy weaver, who had not risen and was not likely to rise. Both deputations appeared at once, which to a man less honest and direct than Francis would have been inconvenient. He might have requested one to retire while he gave audience to the other, but he had so little the fear of Mr. Prentice before his eyes, that he really wished every elector and every non-elector to hear his sentiments and opinions as fully and openly as possible, 
and he received both of the deputations together. He first heard what his own would-be constituents had to say, and satisfied them as to his perfect independence of the great Whig families, and that he meant to keep his political judgment unbiased by party politics. "'Then what about the extension of the suffrage?' asked Sandy Pringle. "'We want five-pound voters at Ladykirk.' "'That is a question likely to be kept in abeyance during the sitting of this Parliament,' said Francis. "'If it is brought forward, I must say that I cannot at present vote for an extension of the suffrage.' "'Oh, we thought you were an out-and-out liberal, none of your finality Whigs that took a bit of step in the right direction, and then darest not venture further.' "'You man vote for the five-pound vote if you are to be our man,' said Sandy Pringle. "'We thought you would be for a bolder step than a five-pound vote,' said Jamie Howiston. "'You're said to be the poor man's friend. Is it fair that, like a hose, that make a country what it was, should have no voice in the election? We're for manhood suffrage in the ballot, and we looked at you to be our candidate, for we thought you was our member. If so be as we had our rights, and had votes to give, you would have had them. "'It's fear!' "'It's fear of the Earl and the Freeburg gentry that keeps him from speaking out his mind,' said Sandy Pringle. "'But his heart is all right. He knows what's wanted, and if he's no thorough to the Elliots and the Greys, he can vote as he thinks fit. I think we can depend on him.' "'My friends,' said Francis, "'I wish to show no fear and no favour. I would not say to you what I would not say to the Earl, nor to the Earl what I would not be sorry or ashamed to let you hear.' I wish you to know, as clearly as I can explain them, my political principles, so that I may raise no unfounded expectations and disappoint no one willfully or designedly. I think with you that it is a great evil that the working man has no voice in the election of the members of the legislature. I hope to live to see the day, and I will labor to advance it, when every man shall feel his influence in greater or less measure in that most important part of the duty of a free people." But have any of you ever seriously considered the effect which would follow the adoption in Great Britain, at present, of manhood suffrage, or even of reducing the franchise to a five-pound vote? There would be far more economy in the public service, said Sandy Pringle. There would be far less jobbery and corruption in government patronage, said Jamie Howiston, the new town weaver. They couldn't have swamped the constituencies by making fictitious votes, said Sandy. They might bribe if the franchise was limited, said Jamie Howiston, but with manhood suffrage in the ballot, a man might vote just as he liked, and hus working man, our rights, and our feelings, and our interest, just as dear to hus as pedigrees and acres to the aristocracy. We want no ten-hour bills. What right have parliaments to dictate to hus, and keep hus from selling what we have to sell, our time and our labor? We want to be let alone to mind our own business, and not to be treated as if we was barns that didna ken what was for their guide. Now, now, Master Hogarth, when ye get the allotments into your hands, ye you showed that ye kent what they were fit for, and ye maun see the bigger constituency is, the purer it is likely to be. My friends, said Francis, the effect of any great extension of the suffrage, as things are at present, would be to put the whole political power into the hands of the least educated classes of the community. "'Not the whole with a five-pound vote,' said Sandy. "'Surely not the whole, even with manhood suffrage,' said Jamie. "'We did not want it all, only our fair share.' "'But it is in the nature of things,' said Francis, "'that it must be so. "'Your five-pound voters, Mr. Pringle, "'would outvote the ten-pound voters enormously. "'Your non-propertied electors, Mr. Howiston, "'would outvote even the five-pound voters, "'and would, in every constituency, "'carry their candidate by an overwhelming majority. "'This would not be good, "'either for the country or for you.' 
"'But the rich have the house of lords, where they are paramount,' said Sandy Pringle. "'A very feeble barrier that would be found against the abuses of democracy,' said Francis. "'You know well that in all emergencies the lords must give way to the commons.' "'Deed man they,' said Jamie Howison, "'and the only chance of justice for us that they mind. "'But, Meister Hogarth, you see that property and education and rank, and a that, had it their way, and for hundreds of years, and it's time we should have our turn. We aren't alike the French, in the days of the old revolution. We would respect property. Even if we out our muckle power, I think we would not make bad use of it. It's hard to keep us out of our rights for ever, because you think we might get a thought tomorrow than is good for us. But, said Sandy sagaciously, you acknowledge that things as they are are not fair. What would you do to mend them? You recollect a proposal of Lord John Russell's some years ago to reconstruct the electoral districts by making them each return three members, and allowing each elector to vote for only two, so as to secure somewhat of the rights of minorities, said Francis. Oh, we misdoubted that, for we thought it was a treacherous thing on Lord John's part, said Sandy. It is hard enough for the liberals to get their dues with this restricted franchise, and this arrangement would make the Tories stronger than they are now. "'But it is not just that a majority of a third should be secured to their third share in the representation?' said Francis. "'Oh, you're going to first principles, like your friend, Master Sinclair. "'No doubt it's all right, but it would not answer. "'The third, in a district, man do without their man, "'and in some other they might have the best of it. "'That would make a odds even. "'It does so in a great measure at present, though not so much as I could wish.' but every extension of the suffrage will tend to extinguish the minorities more and more. You cannot say that, in any electoral district you could name, with manhood suffrage, the working classes would not enormously outnumber the educated classes. "'And we might wait for the reconstruction of the districts afore there is any chance of justice,' said Jamie Howison. "'I'm thinking we'll have to tarry long for our rights.' "'Not so long, if you steadily keep in view that this is the first step.' Lord John Russell's proposal was an approximation to a right principle, which, if it had been properly supported, might have given the fairest opening for greater reforms. If the Conservatives had voted for a really conservative measure like this, it would have been carried, but as it was brought forward by a political opponent, they voted against it, though now they taunt him with introducing it. If the Whig party had seen the importance of it, and had vigorously supported it, it might have facilitated the extension of the suffrage, a measure which none of you can desire more earnestly than I do. I have conversed recently with some colonial gentlemen returned from Australia on the working of their manhood suffrage and the ballot, and from one of them I got an idea which appears to be a still better one than Lord John Russell's. It was embodied in a municipal bill for an infant city, that of Adelaide, drawn up by no less a person than Roland Hill, then secretary for the colonization commissioners. I believe it was a deplorably bad town council for Birmingham that led his acute mind to ponder how to secure the rights of minorities, as it was the enormous expense of a correspondence he entered into on the subject of the coal-tax grievance that led him to make the calculations, and to devise the system by which letters could be carried all over the kingdom for the penny. "'Well, and what does Roland Hill say about the minorities that she care muckle for?' asked Sandy Pringle. "'We have great respect for Roland Hill,' and what he has to say on such a subject should we'll deserve a hearing on any rate. He had an arrangement by which a quorum of the citizens could plump for one member of a council, giving additional force to their vote. As they voted for one instead of eighteen, their vote was worth eighteen. 
By concentrating their vote they proportionally increased the power of it. "'Oh, we can that plumping. I makes the vote more valuable,' says Sandy. "'Simply because you are one vote it is an advantage to your member, which is not given to any other, but this system gives a much greater reward for concentrating your vote. In Lord John's case the thing was incomplete, for unless you have the power of giving your two votes to one man, a minority of a third cannot get in a member. It is the cumulative power given by Roland Hill that secures the minorities will not be extinguished. This subject will receive my careful attention if I am returned for the boroughs, for I consider it by far the most important question of the day, and if I can get the working classes to sympathize with me, I hope for success in time. Also, a revision of the partisanship laws, so as to afford every facility for working people to cooperate with each other, for it is only by that means that much can be done to improve their condition. Those Rochdale pioneers are going on most satisfactorily with their cooperative store, which they are now extending to other undertakings of a greater magnitude, and I hope soon to see hundreds of similar associations in Great Britain and Ireland. But we want more freedom for limited liability companies, instead of so many difficulties being thrown in their way by over-legislation. I do not want to treat working people as children, but to encourage them to help themselves. I have had to work hard myself, and I know what it is. We will live to you, said Sandy Pringle, and even though in some points we may not see things exactly as you do, and know a mere thing to have a name, and be counted like the Fortescues and Turnbulls they are putting up. "'Little good, little ill, like a spile among parritch, it was that chap Trummel,' said Jamie Houston. "'I am sorry I have been so short a time in the district, so that I am so imperfectly known to you. But I hope in time to show that I deserve your confidence,' said Francis. "'But what about the ballot?' asked Jamie Houston. "'I have not quite made up my mind about the ballot,' said Francis. "'It is humiliating to confess to such ignorance, but there is so much to be said on both sides that I am puzzled.' I should like public opinion to be so much improved that there would be no necessity for the ballot, but perhaps without it we cannot regenerate public opinion. I am quite open to conviction on either side, on this, as on many other political questions. Now I think you understand my principles. I will vote for whatever I think right, no matter from what side of the house or from what party it emanates. If you can trust to my intelligence and my integrity, you will vote for me, but I make no pledge." "'And we will ask none,' said Pringle. "'We will look into you.' "'But, Master Hogarth,' said one of Jamie Howison's colleagues, "'we look to you to mind the interest of them that has no votes, "'and that is a large body, as ye can.' "'Yes, a very large body indeed, when you include the women and children,' said Francis. "'Oh, the women and children,' said the weaver, with a disappointed air. "'I was not thinking of them. They're a wheel enough. The men takes care of them.' "'Not always the best care in the world,' said Francis.' Children need protective legislation to guard them from being overworked by parents and masters. Women are supposed to be free agents, but they do not really get all the rights of free agents. They should be empowered to protect themselves. The law should support them in obtaining their just rights. A wife ought not to be treated as a chattel. Her earnings should be protected if she wishes it. And women, too, should have a wider field of labor. The difficulties which are thrown in the way of the weaker sex, in their attempts to earn a livelihood, both by law and by society, are very unworthy of the age we live in. Will, Master Hogarth, though I dinna just see the necessity for bringing in women to compete with men at their trades, you could do ill without them at our meals, and maybe you're in the right. You'll find us Whigs at Lady Kirk United. In that case you're safe to carry the day,' said Sandy Pringle. 
Francis's return, however, ran more risk than either he or Sandy Pringle counted upon, for the suggestion, carefully circulated by Fortescue, Toutwill, and the Tory agents, and feebly denied even by Mr. Hogarth's own Swinton agent, that he was a most unpopular man in the county, and that it was a mistake on the Earl's part to support him, very nearly brought down a member of the Reform Club to force him to retire after his canvass was made, and his majority counted as small but safe. This shabby proceeding was only averted by a firmness of the new town Whigs, who were indignant at such treatment of a man so independent and so able as Mr. Hogarth, and they declared to the Earl, through their agent, that if he did not, with his party, support Cross Hall for the boroughs, they would set up Mr. Sinclair for the county and vote as one man for him, so that Lord Frederick would have an overwhelming majority over the Honourable James. This threat of a certain defeat for the county restored the Earl to his original intention of giving a mild support to Hogarth, who certainly would be a better man than Fortescue. There was the usual amount of personal abuse levelled at the banker's clerk. Neither his father nor his mother was spared. There were caricatures of him in mean lodgings and shabby raiment, doing things for himself, which he recollected doing, and which he was not ashamed of having done. If Francis had been made a duke, instead of merely trying to be a member of Parliament, he would never have been ashamed of his past life, nor would he have been distressed or disturbed by the unexpected honour. He would have taken it as a matter of course. His speech from the hustings was clear, manly, and dignified, and far surpassed that of Fortescue, even with Toutwell's diligent prompting. Mr. Sinclair's speech was received with cheers and hisses, but in print it read exceedingly well. Then followed Mr. Toutwell's very rhetorical, very sarcastic, and, as his own party said, very telling speech. But to Jane, who read this report with the greatest interest, it told nothing. The result of the poll was a majority of three in favour of Francis Hogarth, Esquire of Cross Hall, who was accordingly declared duly elected, and took his seat along with Lord Frederick, who had got in for the county by a majority of twenty-seven, much to the Earl's chagrin, who had supported Cross Hall for nothing after all, and the other members of the new Parliament. End of Volume 2, Chapter 14